Meet the next Lieutenant Governor of Florida, Carlo Hernandez. On the ticket. Are you tired of the culture wars and the extremists? And under attack. That they had one of their top henchmen in the union down in Miami. Teachers union president, now candidate for Lieutenant Governor. He wants to sit here and attack me, a teacher, a school teacher. I got it out the mailbox thinking that my right would be stored as the guy told me when I had filled the paper out. The state that registered them to vote then had them arrested. They perjured themselves on the form. They lied. One car that you sent me, my house surrounded, you know what I'm saying, with, with maybe about 50 U.S. marshals and all on the skin that do it like this. New scrutiny on mass election fraud arrests. Not only will that create job growth. Defending the president and her seat in Congress. The big news of the week, all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with the number two at the top of the Florida Democratic ticket, as in the running mate. By the time Charlie Crist officially named Miami-Dade Teachers Union President Carla Hernandez-Matz as his running mate for Lieutenant Governor, the opposition had already launched. The Charlie Crist's choice meant to send a signal that he is going to focus on education as a major policy issue in the race, but the DeSantis campaign quickly made the educator the issue. The attack on Carla Hernandez-Matz was fast and furious, calling her a union boss, a radical leftist, a sympathizer of Fidel Castro, and too close to a fellow teacher and union steward who was found guilty of sexually assaulting some of his students. Carla Hernandez-Matz is live with us today in her first extended Q&A in South Florida. Carla, we are very glad you've joined us this hour, and we'll get to all the opposition in just a moment. But first, kind of a, a broader question of the job change. Um, right now, current Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez is a former state legislator. She is one of the most active and engaged lieutenant governors the state has seen in recent history. The role is kind of what you might make it. So besides education, which is going to be huge, which we'll talk about, uh, there's a lot of state business. How do you foresee this role should you be in it? What do you bring to that? Well, first of all, good morning, Michael and Glenna. I think it's great uh, that you know you're that we're here today and that we're being we're able to talk about these issues. Um, so thank you very much for this opportunity. Look, there's a lot on the line, and the reality is that you know we know that community has to be first and foremost, and we have to talk about the real issues that our community want us to be addressing, and that's affordability. Our folks are being priced out of their communities. That's a real issue that's not being addressed uh, by DeSantis or Jeanette Nunes. And so, you know, how do we talk about insurance prices and how they're going up and how we keep our families in the communities that they're raising their children? Um, this is important. We also got to talk about freedoms. I mean, I'm a teacher. You know I'm going to want to talk about the freedom to learn and the freedom to teach. But I want to talk about even broader freedoms, right? The freedom that we, you just put it in the clip, you know, earlier, that the census arrested people because they voted. And it, it was within their rights. I mean, they're doing so many things that are sloppy and that are hurting the community. So we have to talk about freedoms, voter, uh, the freedom to vote, also about women's freedom. So I'm, I'm a mom, I'm a woman, and the fact that I have 
less freedoms today than I had two months ago in the state of Florida is something that is reprehensible. And so we need to talk about reproductive health. We need to talk about the women's freedom to choose. Uh, and these are all things that are on the ballot and they're important because our community has the right and too yeah. many people have fought hard so that we have Carla. these freedoms. And those are the issues people want to talk about. Yeah, uh, Carla, those are all legitimate issues. We'll hope to cover almost all of them in the next 20 minutes or so. But first of all, you have become the issue. The thrill of being chosen running mate for Charlie Crist certainly didn't last very long when you were called Carla Marx and a radical leftist and a union boss and then accused of being way too close to Wendell Nebs, this former union steward and at one point a friend of yours who is now serving eight years in prison for sexual assault on middle school students. What about your relationship with Mr. Nibs? Well, listen, first of all, Michael, I know that you have to ask these questions, but I hope I that do. you're not sounding board for, you know, the Republican Party, because these are false attacks that have already been debunked. The Orlando Sentinel talked about this. There's so many sources out there that have already debunked these issues. But let me set the record straight, because I'm a truth teller. I'm a teacher. Um, it is horrible what Mr. Nibs did, and justice was served, period. Now, here's the, the irony in that. The irony is that the Matt Gates party, that DeSantis, who has openly embraced Matt Gates, has pictures with him, has not yet condemned his actions. He's a pedophile. Okay, I'm, a I'm, I'm, Carla, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt you here. Let's get to Matt Gates maybe later. He's really not relevant here. You know, at some point. Neither and is this case. No, hold on. Neither is this case. All right. That's been debunked. Well, so, just, just let so me let's finish. talk about the issues then. Let me sort of re-ask the question. 2016, you became president of the United Teachers of Dade. You had been secretary treasurer. And Mr. Nibs had been the union steward at Brownsville Middle School. And you and he and a lot of other people had traveled to Tallahassee together to uh, lobby on behalf of public schools. You know, it's not as if you didn't know this guy. How, how well did you know him? Did you have any idea that he was under suspicion for sexual being a sexual predator so i absolutely did not have any idea um and quite frankly neither did the school district so just so that you know and to set the record straight miami-dade county public schools is the one that hires and fires folks we do not vet them we do not do background checks on folks and as a matter of fact the department of education who had received numerous complaints, had done nothing. And here's what I want you to do, Michael. I want, I want you to make sure that you go back and that you do some research too. Because Ron DeSantis and his cabinet had complaints in writing about this person, and his certificate was not revoked from Ron DeSantis. So let's talk about real issues now, Michael. So um, as long as we're getting in the weeds here a little bit, let me just throw out because I, I had covered the Wendell Nibs case and also the Jason Myers case, which are two teachers in the Miami-Dade district uh, that were accused and at least one convicted of sex crimes with children. Um, and the school district paid out millions, and I don't know about tens of millions, but I'll just go with millions in settlements uh, on those civil kind of cases. So there is that issue in the district and to ignore it is is foolish. Um, so that said, let's just kind of move on here for just a minute because 
Carla, you know, candidates run on their record, and a lot of people who haven't been politicians don't have a record to run on, so they run on other things. But you do have a record as, uh, if not a state politician, then a union president. So I want to ask you a couple of things, um, cha challenging a little bit of the narrative here on your record as a union president under your watch. Um, your union allowed the Miami-Dade District to eliminate salary steps for teachers who for a long time relied on those salary increase steps. Um, also, the union allowed the district to kind of do a little shell game to circumvent class size restrictions and some other things. Um, lastly, I'll throw in there the focus that you had done when you were uh, a president of the union, you constantly criticized state funding for schools, but at the same time, the day district was lowering its millage rate, which affected the local portion of school funding. So I wonder if uh, that's a kind of a lot in that basket. I wonder if you would take that and kind of address those things. That there's a lot in that basket, and I'm a teacher, so I'm going to educate you on a few of those points. Please do. Um, because there's some research there that you have not done. So first thing is that state statute predicates a lot of the things that you're that you're addressing right now that you're discussing, and that's part of the problem, right? We know that our state legislature needs help. There's a lot of things that are on the ballot this November. So state statute is the one that predicated, um, you know what our steps were going to be or not be. That was done away with at the state level. So that's one thing. The millage is also, um, is, is also, um, um, A board uh, vote. A board vote. No, 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 no. The, it is set by state statute. The, the millage of Miami-Dade County Public Schools is set by state statute. That's it. All right, uh, Carla Hernandez-Matz, we're so glad you're with us this morning, but we've got a commercial break to do. Stay with us. We'll be right back. On this Labor Day weekend, our special guest this morning on This Week in South Florida, Carla Hernandez-Matz, who has been on the show often as the president of the United Teachers of Day. Now she is lieutenant governor candidate running with Charlie Chris. Carla, let me ask you to set the record straight about another accusation made by the Ron DeSantis campaign about the tweet you sent out when Fidel Castro died. You sent out the tweet. Let's put it up on the screen if we can. A political figure dies at 90. Most in Miami rejoice. Many in Cuba mourn. Hashtag Fidel Castro. Uh, there are a number of people who say, gee, why didn't you condemn Fidel Castro for having what he did to the island of Cuba? Also would point out that you are of Honduran heritage. You are not Cuban-American. That's right. And um, here's what everybody else also needs to know, that on that day when Fidel Castro died, I was out in the streets with pots and pans celebrating his death. You know, I, I grew up in Hialeah, and so my neighbors and a lot of my colleagues and friends are Cuban or of Cuban descent. And so, you know, I fought for immigration rights. I understand what refugees' plight is and why they're fighting for freedom and coming to this country. Um, what is ridiculous, though, is that Jeanette Nunez and her party are actually trying to lecture me about where I stand politically when they have, when they are the ones that just two weeks ago were saying that Cubans 
her own people should be put on buses and bus to Delaware. I mean, she's so out of touch and so disconnected with the community that she can't even realize how harmful it is the things that she's saying. I am a proud Democrat and I am certainly pro-democracy, so we need to put that to rest. But here's one other thing. I want to go back to what Glenna was saying earlier. Glenna uh, also failed to mention that I'm also the president that got the largest teacher pay raise in all of Miami-Dade County public history, uh, public schools history. And we did that through a referendum. Why? Because for so many years, our state legislature has underfunded. They have defunded public education. And so these are things that because of our work and what we were, we've been able to do here in Miami-Dade County Public Schools, we've been able to improve the lives of teachers and working people. Excellent. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, and it's not that I failed to mention anything. It's, there's a lot to cover, and we're trying to do it all. Um, all right, so let's get, as long as you're bringing it back, let's get into a little bit of some state education stuff. So um, if, if you uh, should work in Tallahassee um, in the coming years, you will be facing there in a different role a, a teacher shortage, which the state is undergoing right now. The governor had this idea and is implementing retired military, giving retired military uh, training certificates to put in the classrooms as an idea to temporarily leave shortages in the classroom. Um, you were definitely against that, as was your union counterpart in Broward. What would be an idea to alleviate the teacher shortages? So thank you for that question. This is one of the issues that is a big, uh, a big topic here in the state of Florida. Um, we have over 9,000 vacancies across the state, and they are because of Ron DeSantis. It is because of his failed policies of how he has defunded public education year after year. And because of it, and because of how he has deprofessionalized our profession, it has created this absence of workforce. Ka Carla, um, can I just, can I just um, slide in a little, a little fact check there? The, the defunding is not exactly factual, and, and the governor did afford teachers a pay raise and bonuses this year. Just laying that on the record. Please, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and record this also. We are 48th in the nation. Mm -hmm. So if you think that that is not defunding public schools, then there's something wrong with that, too. Because that is a fact that Miami-Dade and the state of Florida is 48th in the nation in terms of how it funds schools. So when we talk about teacher shortage, this is a self-inflicted wound. He caused that wound. He caused us, uh, the, uh, our workforce, to want to leave. And so for him to try to band-aid the situation by saying that folks that do not study this, uh, that do not have the pedagogy, that do not have the skill set, or you know, just the strategy to work with children in a time that we are overcoming a pandemic. I mean, think about this, Glenna. Everybody has talked about the achievement gap and making sure that children don't have learning loss. And instead of saying, we're gonna put the best resources in our classrooms, make sure that we fund schools and get the best educators there because we need to lift children's morale. We need to work with them, make sure they're having academic gains. He's trying to do this in the most cheap way by saying anybody can come into the workforce and it would never be allowed for lawyers or for doctors, or even for military. They would never put me, a middle school special ed teacher, on the battlefield to do the front line, because not only do I respect them too much, but we got to understand that everybody has the training to do, and this is a highly skilled job. Yeah. Uh, Carla, as you well know, the governor urged the legislature to pass the Parental Rights and Education Bill, and they did, also known as the Don't Say Gay Bill. 
Uh, it does not mention gay people at all, but of course the LGBTQ community believes that they are the targets of discrimination by this bill. Uh, teachers, as you know, may not uh, say anything about gender identity or sexual uh, identity uh, from K to th three. Um, uh, what about your reaction to this bill? Do you think this is discriminatory? So first of all, I'm a parent, and I believe that parents and teachers are each other's biggest allies. It takes a village to raise a child, and we need each other. And I've seen that firsthand in the classroom. It's incredibly important. So that's one part. But this is a direct attack, so it's not a belief. This is a fact. You see, what people fail to understand is that Ron DeSantis and his cabinet and the Department of Education are the ones that set the curriculum and the standards. So he's always known that we have never taught sexual identity from kindergarten to third grade. This was a made-up story. This is him, again, trying to, uh, you know, falsely attack teachers. I mean, who attacks teachers to say that these things are happening? And he, he created this big bill, and it sh rightly should be called Don't Say Gay, because he is trying to marginalize and oppress children and families that identify as, as LGBTQ+. And it's a shame, and shame on him for doing that. Carla. And, you know, our teachers are going to keep on doing what is right, which is creating safe learning environments for all children, no matter where they come from, their nationality, race, or, you know, zip Carla? code. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know that we wish we had another half <laughs> hour to spend with you, but we got to say bye. This is uh, going to be a really interesting race, and we will be following every moment of it, and we certainly do appreciate your time this morning. Carla, thanks very much. Great to have you on. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. All right. Next, the mass arrests now under scrutiny. Felons who voted without being eligible to do so. So why did the state greenlight their voter registrations and then arrest them for voting illegally? We'll have a legal view on that when we come back. I got it out the mailbox thinking that my rights were restored after God told me when I had filled a paper out. So I was happy. None of these people should have been arrested in the first place if the system worked the way we all want it to work. Simultaneous raids, 18 former felons who served their time and got out and then registered to vote are now criminally charged again for casting votes that are said to be ineligible. Those cases heralded as the first moves by the state's new Department of Election Crimes and Security are now under increasing scrutiny, as is the way Florida vets its voters. Larry Davis is an attorney who is now representing one of those arrested in the sweeps last month. Larry, it's good to have you with us today. Larry, good Thank morning. You. Good morning. So in just covering the cases, Larry, it seems like, um, I'm just going to launch that I think if I were a defense attorney, the defense would be, hey, there was no intent here because the actual statute has to have intent because if there's no intent, there's no crime. How, well, how, exactly, off, how off base am I? That's exactly right. But if I could just for a moment talk about Amendment 4, uh, because I think it's important that your audience understand um, how important Amendment 4 is because studies have shown that people that participate in voting and democracy 
have less recidivism and it reduces crime. So let me, I'm just going to stop you for a moment because here, here's, um, I'm just going to lay this out for you. We have the next six minutes to talk and Amendment 4 doesn't apply here because the felons we're talking about were all convicted of murder and sex crimes, which does not come under Amendment 4. And so they truly are ineligible to vote. So if we well, could, let's, let's start there. Okay, and I agree with that. But there is so much confusion in regard to the statute and the way the legislature passed different uh, legislation that that to throw roadblocks into it, that there was all kind of confusion whatsoever. But let me talk about intent. Uh, my client was charged with knowingly and willfully um, voting and registering to vote. And he did not have any intent when he voted um, what happened was he was at Walmart. He went in and uh, they asked him if he wanted to vote. And he said, I'm a convicted felon. I can't vote. They said, no, Amendment 4 has passed. And therefore, you, you can vote. And he signed the form. And then what happened was um, about uh, two months later, he got this uh, a voting card uh, that says from uh, Christina White, who's the supervisor of elections in Dade County, that he's eligible to vote. And so he voted in the 2020 election. Um, the FDLE came out to his house about a week before he was arrested in, in the middle of August and questioned him. And he asked if there was any issues, is he in trouble? And they said no. And then a week later uh, on Friday or the 18th of August, um, he wakes up at 6 a.m. His house is surrounded by police with automatic weapons. They're banging, they're banging on his doors and his windows. They tell him to come out. He comes out. Uh, they don't even let him get dressed and they take him to jail. He's in jail for two days until his wife can bond him out. And then what happens, he goes to the hospital because he has heart issues. So the he heart of the matter, it sounds like, the heart of the matter here in the registering to vote was that uh, like your client, we've heard these stories from the other people arrested, they were not going out to vote to register. They were, they were urged to register by some of these third-party voter registration volunteers who just thought, you know, to your point, were confused about Amendment 4. Hey, you're a felon, you can vote. These third parties sometimes get paid by the number of people they register. So it, it sounds like an, a more of an indictment of the system and process than it does of a felon voting. Well, that's, that's part of the confusion of the law also. I mean, you have the governor, DeSantis, who says it's a supervisor elections uh, uh, responsibility in each, in each county to straighten it out. And then you have Pete Antonacci, who's, uh, you know, the election uh, police, you know, heads of Director of this new elections police, department of whatever security. His name is, whatever his title is, who's saying, no, it should be the uh, supervisor of elections in Tallahassee. So they don't know who's responsible to fix the system. There hasn't been, from what I know, there hasn't been any effort to fix it. I don't think anybody's been suspended or fired in any of these things. And, and a voter like my client was going out to vote to participate in democracy. He had no intent to break the law. He certainly wouldn't have gone to vote if he didn't have a voter card. He wasn't told that it was okay to vote. All right. Well, Larry, when you get a chance to be before a judge, you will make that argument, and we're just lay people. But it seems to me that these charges should be dismissed against your client and perhaps against any of the 18 people arrested who did not intend to break the law by voting. 
Well, thank you, Judge Putney. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but, you know, part of the problem on a motion, we have other motions on jurisdiction that could lead to dismissal. But for a criminal lawyer like myself, uh, we know um, that intent is an issue for the jury, not for the judge. Oh. So I, I'm thinking that sooner or later we're going to be in front of six people and they're going to have to decide whether my client had any intent or whether he willfully broke any law. And so, I'm telling you, he certainly did not. Yeah. So the, you know, the state's position is personal responsibility. A, a voter is responsible for his or her own registration and ability to vote and eligibility. I mean, there, there's, you know, that's certain common sense to that, I suppose. But, um, you know, they're right. These, these people did vote illegally. So sh what should the consequence be, if any? Well, I'd like to compare uh, what happened with my client, uh, how he was arrested, to what happened in the villages. In the village, there were a number of people that were arrested that did have their intent, did have intent to break the law. They voted in their home home state and they voted in Florida. How did it? How was it handled by the state of Florida? They called them up. They told them to come in. They put them on a pretrial intervention program and they told them to take a civics course. I mean, that's a lot different than the way they're treating the clients down here in South Florida and really in a number of the uh, more metropolitan areas in the state of Florida where all these arrests took place. Yeah, well, it's certainly true. There was no big show in the villages when four people, you know, were charged with voting twice, once in their previous hometown and then in Florida. Larry Evans, we appreciate your time this morning, and I will stipulate to that. Larry Davis, <laughs> great to have you here. Thank you both. You have a wonderful uh, holiday weekend. And you as well. Thanks. All right, an explosion of desperate migrants coming ashore in South Florida has the Coast Guard on guard. The view from the top, that's next. This is video of the Coast Guard responding to an emergency at sea this week. A migrant boat capsized at sea off Isla Morada. It's just the latest in a flotilla of undocumented migrants who are trying to reach Florida. It's one of the increasing number of migrant encounters that is hitting our state. Coast Guard and Border Patrol continue to warn about the dangers and risks of those voyages, but now this recent surge has them reworking their approach. U.S. Coast Guard Rear Admiral Brendan McPherson is the commander of District 7, headquartered in Miami, and director of the Homeland Security Task Force for the Southeast. Admiral, it is so nice to have you with us today. Thanks so much for your time. Admiral, well, good afternoon, Glenna. We're yeah, good afternoon, Glenna and Michael. I'm very happy to be with you. Well, uh, so are we. First, let me just say, Admiral, that over the course of the years, I have been at sea. I've been on the Coast Guard boats and uh, seen the work that your men and women do, and it is remarkable. They put their own lives often at risk to save others. So for that, thank you very much. Uh, Admiral, we are seeing this huge influx of undocumented migrants in uh, unsafe, unsafe boats trying to reach the U.S. Uh, Florida shores. Uh, are you overwhelmed by this? Uh, not at all, Michael. Um, we are certainly um, monitoring the situation, and we, as you indicated, we've observed an increase in um, undocumented uh, citizens uh, taking dangerous, perilous routes from their country of origin to try and get to the United States. Uh, this is not a crisis. Um, however, uh, we are increasing our patrols at sea, in the air, and on land 
to deal with the increase in migration that we're seeing. Let me let me just tell you, first of all, our highest priority is, is to uh, prevent the needless loss of life of any migrant at sea. I was actually, that was going to be my next question, the priority here. And I think as human beings, everyone's priority is to keep fellow human beings safe and healthy, one would hope. Um, but for the Coast Guard, the, the mission, Coast Guard, Border Patrol, all of Homeland Security personnel, is to intercept at sea. And, and I, I wonder if you would explain to viewers, because often, especially now seeing so many, almost daily, um, it's confusing. Who, who stays? Who was who taken back? How does that work? So mm -hmm. if you would, explain the process that you have to do. Yeah, I'm happy to answer that question. Thank you, Glenna. So first and foremost, Homeland Security Task Force Southeast is a whole of government approach to deal with this uh, situation. Uh, and it actually dates back to 2003. It was one of the first things that the Department of Homeland Security did was create this task force and we established an operation for it called Operation Vigilant Century. So since then, we have been, it's a standing task force. We've been employing our resources across our interagency, our GHS partners from Customs and Border Protection and Border Patrol and others. And the goal really is to prevent the loss of life at sea. And the best way to do that, we know, is to first deter and then prevent illegal migration ventures uh, within the Caribbean. And so we patrol far out uh, offshore uh, near the country of origin, in the case of Haiti or Cuba, uh, with the intent to interdict them as close to, to the point of departure as possible. First and foremost, to protect and save their lives. Because as we've seen with tragic consequences, and, and your station has reported even recently, um, many of these vessels are either overloaded, unseaworthy, or both. And so the idea is to remove them from that dangerous situation be, before it becomes an extremist and we have a tragic loss of life. Yeah. Admiral, Again, we certainly have, yeah. we have a role in border security uh, as a military and, and a federal law enforcement agency, but our first goal is to prevent the loss of life. Yeah. Admiral, uh, as you well know, uh, the so-called wet foot, dry foot policy was wiped off the books a number of years ago. Formerly, it was possible for a Cuban immigrant who reached U.S. soil was allowed to stay, and then the Cuban Adjustment Act kicked in, and within one year, they could have permanent legal residency in the country. Now, the Cuban Adjustment Act is still on the books, so it appears that there are occasionally, as there were down in Key Largo a week or so ago, some Cubans who swam ashore or got to shore, and then they asked for a political asylum. So not everybody goes back, do they? Well. Anybody interdicted at sea uh, will be returned to the country of origin. So illegal migration by sea is not an option, subject to U.S. law and policy. Um, so the vast number of migrants that have been interdicted at sea have been returned to either Haiti, Cuba, or in some cases, the Dominican Republic. Uh, so that is the law, that is the policy that will continue. That said, there are certainly protections and processes in place for those migrants who uh, do make it ashore and subject to asylum and credible fear determinations by uh, the federal government, including the U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Service. You know, Admiral, um, you had referenced some of the reporting we've done. Our Janine Stanwood has been doing an amazing yeah. job in doing uh, immigration reporting. And um, the, the numbers that we've been reporting, 
especially of Cuban migrants, have surpassed the big waves that we've seen in the past, even in the 60s, 80s, Marielle, the 90s, the rafter crisis. And, and I have the images of the rafters, the boats, just waves of people trying to get to shore in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember ever talking about human smuggling then. And I know now, you know, uh, sort of quantify for us, of, of all of what you're seeing, what percentage, how big a problem is the actual smuggling? Because that takes on a whole other level of crime. It, it does, Glenna, that's a great question. Um, so I, I don't know if I can pinpoint an exact number or percentage, but what I can tell you is that human smugglers care only about money and they do not care about the lives of their passengers. Um, there's a human face to this and we recognize that. Uh, in fact, one of our, our, our um, goals and objectives is always to treat migrants interdicted at sea with dignity and respect. Human smugglers do not do that. Uh, and we've seen too many cases where they will actually force um, their passengers into the water in dangerous situations. This year alone, we, we, are, we know of at least uh, 61 migrants that have lost their lives at wow. sea. And that's far too many. Mm. It's higher than we've seen in the past few decades. We're very concerned about that, which is why we are enhancing our patrols with our interagency and uh, international partners. Yeah, Admiral Brendan McPherson, we thank you very much for your time this morning. You're a busy man, and thank you for all the good work that the Coast Guard does. Yeah, thank you, Michael and Glenn. And I just remind everybody that illegal maritime migration is always dangerous and often deadly. Uh, and, and we would ask the public to uh, to think about that, please make any reports to the U.S. Coast Guard that you might see. And if you're thinking about sending money to those family members, um, think about those potential deadly consequences. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well said. And up next, a conversation with a congresswoman. Debbie Westerman Schultz is going to join us next. We're now about two months from Election Day, and suddenly Democrats are, have been given a slightly better chance in the midterm elections. Democrat incumbent Debbie Wasserman Schultz of Weston is on the ballot, and she's been in Washington since 2005 and is here with us live via Zoom. 2005, so you started when you were like 15 years old, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Welcome. Just, just, like, just like you, Glenna. Yeah. <laughs> Congresswoman, it's great, it's, great to, it's great to see you, and I'm glad to see you laughing, too. Uh, let's begin with uh, President Biden Thursday night gave a powerful speech at Independence Hall in which he said the soul of our nation is under attack, the very core fundamentals of democracy, by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. Uh, did he go too far in that speech? Oh, on the contrary. I mean, I think he really clearly laid out that Americans don't want MAGA extremism running their daily lives and affecting their lives around their kitchen table. What we did over the last few months was we took on Big Pharma and won by lowering prescription drug costs. We took on the NRA and won by making sure that we have safer communities by passing common sense gun safety laws. We took on big corporations and made sure that we passed legislation so that corporations all pay their fair share. We, 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 we took on, uh, on, on the, the Big Pharma. And, uh, and, and so those are, those are really important issues that affect people's everyday lives. And Republicans not only voted against all of that, but what they're doing and their priority is to have government take over women's bodies. They, they support 
making sure that you have less rights as a woman than uh, than before Roe. And all over America, whether it's the New York congressional race, the Alaska congressional race, the vote in Kansas that that uh, that was passed overwhelmingly, failed overwhelmingly, which would have actually made abortion rights more restrictive in Kansas of all places. Voters are making it very clear that they want people, they want government to stay out of their bedrooms and their personal lives, and they want us to make sure we focus on improving their lives around the kitchen table. You know, that's, uh, that's the, the um, you know, you, you just gave the the Democratic address of all the issues involved, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I appreciate that. To to Michael's point, the speech, um, you know, we've been listening to the the reactions to the speech, and it sounds like you know half of America heard the speech in one way, and half heard the other, and that's kind of where we are as a nation right now. Do you, do you consider that to have been a a political speech or a presidential address? Which one was that? I think the president laid out very clearly that there is a real concern that the Republican Party in this country and their supporters have essentially said, we want to discard democracy. We have Republican members of Congress you know, overwhelmingly voted to overturn a legitimate election. Right, but did, didn't he we talk about... Them he, he, we have them excuse me for interrupting. I just wanted to... I mean, the president was talking about, he kept saying MAGA Republicans, and it, it sounded almost as if he was talking to Republicans who may not consider themselves MAGA Republicans and urging those people to come with him. That, that's I, kind of a take a I, lot of people had. I, I think that that's exactly what he was doing, because we know that most Republicans, you know, they, they don't support the kind of extremism that Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis have fully and full-throatedly endorsed. They want to make sure, I mean, most people in America just want to make sure that uh, we, like Joe Biden has done, that we, we have the government focused on creating jobs. We passed the CHIPS Act to make sure that we can manufacture computer chips here in America. We started seeing over the last few months gas prices come down now by over a dollar. We have we see inflation, you know, slowly but surely starting to improve. And those are the kinds of, that has happened. Those things have happened. That progress has been made because Democrats have focused on making sure that we can help people's lives be better. And Republicans have not only blocked that or attempted to block all of that, but they've also focused more on more extremist issues like you know, making sure that we can ban all abortions and, you know, bullying gay kids and really getting involved in limiting speech. And I, I have constituents, you all know that, you have neighbors, uh, we all have friends here who fled countries with, with authoritarian autocrats who have limited and taken away the rights of, of so many yeah. of their countrymen. And that's how they ended up here. Yeah. And now we're seeing that play out on the Republican side of the aisle uh, where their priorities seem to be mimicking the, the policies of autocrats in other countries that my constituents fled. That's yeah. unacceptable, and that's why you're seeing, I think, the result in the vote, in the vote, in the vote results. Yeah, Congresswoman, uh, you have been in politics a long time, been very successful at it, and in the past you have had some Republican colleagues and at least one former Congresswoman Ileana ross Leighton, who was really your friend. I mean, you were friends yeah. with her. You may still be friends with Ileana. I mean, yeah. a lot of us are. So I, I guess I guess my, my question is this. Have other Republicans, including those who are elected from South Florida, uh, have they changed? Have they undergone a kind of a metamorphosis? I mean, you're not friends with them the way you were friends with Ileana. What, you know, how do you get that comity back? 
Well, I, you know, I mean, I, you, you both know that I serve on the Appropriations Committee, and actually on the subcommittee that I chair, the Military Construction and Veterans Affairs Subcommittee, we have wonderful comedy on our committee. We work together very closely. We don't always agree on the issues, but we try to set aside uh, the issues on which we don't agree and focus on, on where we can build consensus. Um, I, I do have friends that are Republicans. Um, I, I think it's unfortunate that right now, too many Republican members of Congress, too many Republican leaders feel, um, feel captured uh, by their desire to hold on to power, overwhelming their, their awareness that they should really be trying to do the right thing. Yeah, well, they're just afraid, aren't they just afraid of Donald Trump? I mean, aren't they afraid of being, you know? Yes, they are. They're not just afraid of Donald Trump. They're afraid of losing. You know, Michael, when I swear that oath um, every two years that I'm going to uphold the Constitution, when I go out and look my constituents in the eye, I'm promising and committing to them that I'm going to focus on making sure that I can fight for their life to be better, not fight to keep my to hold on to my job yeah. over anything else. And Republicans are putting politics over people, and what Democrats are focusing on from Joe Biden on down is putting people over politics. That's what the, the my constituents, even if even if they don't agree. I have Republicans and people who come up to me at home all the time and say, Debbie, I don't always agree with you, but I know that you're fighting for what you believe in. I know I can count on you to do what you think is right. And if I don't agree with you, okay. But I, I, Michael, I would never do take cast a vote so that I could hold on to my job if I thought that that vote was wrong. Congresswoman, and then I have to go in front of the voters, and they decide. I, I wanted. Um, thanks. I wanted to uh, ask you if you may. Um, I have you. Did you hear our last segment with the Coast Guard Admiral? I did. Um, yes. Okay. So he, you heard him talk about. You heard. You know. You've seen it covered. You know intimately from the legislative point about yes. this. Um, you know, migra migration now exploding not only by sea but over the southern border. You heard. The admiral say this is not a crisis, but you also hear the Biden administration being criticized for open borders. And practically speaking, everyone knows the borders are not open. But right. how do you explain these record numbers coming into this country now? Well, just look. I mean, look at the protests that happened last July and November in Cuba. I mean, Cuba is really on a, a significant downward spiral, not just economically, but you know through their conti continued failed. Uh, communist policies. Um, they take over. You know, they, they they control all the businesses in that country. Uh, there are no rights. Uh, they, 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 there is incredible suppression of the people and uh, and their voices. They arrest people for expressing their well, opinion. Well, there, there's no reason. Uh, there's no doubt about why they want to leave. I, I guess my question was more of the the borders that should be 100% secure really have not been, and whether you well, call it a crisis see, or not. See, that's not the case, because what's happening at the border itself, remember, we don't have a border, we're, 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 you know, we're a peninsula, um, but at the border, there isn't what is known as a crisis. A crisis is when someone, when you imagine that people are streaming across the border, not in, a, in an orderly way, uh, but what's happening is that you have migrants, a lot of them, for sure, but they're coming at our checkpoints and they're presenting themselves and then they're being processed. 
it's a lot of them. And what there's several things that need to happen. First, Republicans need to stop standing in the way of passing comprehensive immigration reform. People deserve an opportunity to be able to make a better way of life for themselves, and we need a legitimate process to allow that to happen. But but secondly, we need we need Republicans to stop opposing. Making sure that we can provide resources to countries like Honduras and Guatemala okay. and Nicaragua, but Congresswoman, and, I'm, 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 and help people be able to stay in their yeah. country safely. Yeah, and I, not I beg, I beg your pardon. We have run out of time. Should have put and, more on the book uh, for you, and we will next time. Thank you okay. so much. We Thanks appreciate so much. it. Bye bye. Bye. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Check out this on your screen. Get all of today's interviews and the This Week in South Florida podcast right there online by scanning the QR code with your phone. It takes you right there where you're supposed to be. Thanks to for being with us today. <laughs> we appreciate it. Remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Labor Day weekend.